Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Steve and I'm here with Bill. Good morning, Bill. Morning, Steve. This is the Field Guides. So what we do on this podcast is we pick a nature topic, we research that nature topic, then we bring you out to the field and tell you everything we learned about that topic. I said topic a whole bunch. You did, but that's okay. Okay. (laughs) All right, Bill, what are we talking about today? Well, today we are talking about a plant that has a very interesting natural history, but it's a very common plant. Yep. Uh, especially along roadsides and open areas. But I want to start by asking you, Steve. Sure. What do you think about hallucinogenic plants? I've never... Now, mushrooms! No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Before I get into the story, sure. you know you're familiar with the Golden Guides, right? Like, yeah. The Golden, the golden Guide to Birding, birding yeah. So were you aware that there was a Golden Guides to hallucinogenic plant? No. Yeah, a I Golden Guide that. to hallucinogenic... It is no longer in print. Right. Uh, but uh, I had a friend show it to me a number of years back. And before this episode, I looked it up online, and I couldn't find a, a copy readily. I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but it was printed in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And it's a little tiny golden guide. It almost looks like a kid's book, all sure. about hallucinogenic plants. And the plant we're talking about today is a plant with supposed hallucinogenic properties. So we were talking about sumac today, and specifically staghorn sumac. Yeah. Roots typhina. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, the leaves of staghorn sumac are said to be hallucinogenic. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. Now, I've tried it. So back in my college days, uh, <laughs> on one of my uh, college classes, we actually took a trip up to the Adirondacks, and this was told to us by our instructor. And you all got stoned. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> one of the students took, harvested some sumac leaves, dried them, and we tried to smoke them. And I can report that I had no effects whatsoever. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it needs to be the fresh leaves or not. I never tried it since then. But uh, it'd be interesting if yeah. anyone out there has ever had any effects from uh, sumac. Mm-hmm. I'd be interested to hear if that is true or if this is just mm-hmm. you know folklore that uh, has no basis in fact. Or if so. you know a guy, we can get some. <laughs> <laughs> I know a guy. He can get me sumac. <laughs> Now, before we start... I need my sumac fix. (laughs) Before we get into the sumac, though, why don't we tell people where we are? Oh, yeah. We're at a place called Majors Park. Yeah. And this is located just outside the the village of East Aurora. Mm -hmm. Uh, For people who don't know, that's the birthplace of the uh, arts and crafts movement. Oh. Uh, We should say it's the birthplace of the Roycroft movement. Okay. Uh, So that was from uh, earlier in the 20th century. It was all about crafts and leading a a simple life dedicated to craft. Hmm. Uh, People do from all over the country they come to East Aurora just to look at Roycroft history right but a f- number of years ago uh, I think within the past 10 years some citizens in the town got together and they decided that there was a, a nice patch of relatively wild property that they wanted to turn into a park rather than have it um, developed for more housing mm-hmm. so you have a mixture of wetlands here there's some riparian habitat it's mostly second growth woods and, and reclaimed farmland. So there was a creek that ran through the back there of There is. There still yeah. is. Uh, people actually do some kayaking on it. But nice. to give people an idea of, of what we're standing in now, yeah. uh, this is mostly, we have some lots of low shrubs around us. Yeah, honeysuckles. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, it's staghorn sumac right next to us. Right. And then there are some trees, but I'd say this is what more of like an edge habitat here than... Right. Yeah. Yeah, and this doesn't look like it's too old of a place. It's either um, they're not very tall trees no. or they're not very old trees. No, there's a stand of maples nearby, and, and they look... Um, how, how high? 50 feet? <laughs> yeah, maybe yeah. 50 feet. Uh, so they look relatively young. So 
this is um, going through succession right now. It's in a transitional state, right. heading towards forest. But the but path we're walking on right now has our target species right next to it. I think this is our best bet right now. Yeah, here. I think so too. So yeah. staghorn sumac, if you don't know, it is a small tree. Mm -hmm. And should we get into the difference between a tree and a shrub? Uh, if you want to, I, I don't know much other than there's a bit of a height difference. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah. it's debatable what's the difference between a tree or a shrub, but uh, many definitions that I found in researching said a shrub has a maximum feet around 13 feet. Mm -hmm. And at four and a half feet, uh, which foresters call diameter of breast height, it's where they do usually measuring trunk diameter. Right. You're going to have uh, one main trunk usually, or I'm sorry, with shrubs, you're going to have multiple main trunks. Should we say spoiler alert first? Or? Why? Well, you're giving away, what if they haven't read the book? What book? Well, anything. What if they haven't <laughs> read the study? Or Okay, well, read the study and then... This uh, isn't a study. This is me just talking about the difference between trees How did you learn it? Oh, I looked at a whole bunch of different websites. Okay, fine. All right. Are you just being difficult? <laughs> Steve, just being difficult. Right. <laughs> All right, so... At four and a half feet, you're going to have multiple trunks on a shrub usually, and the sure. diameter is going to be four inches or less, or gotcha. less than four inches. So and with sumac, that's generally what you have. You have multiple thin trunks. Okay. Um, it tops out around 15 feet or so. I've seen so many different ranges. In one of my field guides, it said up to 50 feet tall. In another field guide, it said up to 30 feet tall. But I think I even saw it could be a tall shrub or a small tree. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so There's much some overlap, overlap there. there. You're right. <laughs> now, the stand of sumac we're looking at, I'd say from one end to the other, sure. you're probably about 100 feet or so. Mm -hmm. And it has a, like a domed appearance. Sure. Why is that, Steve? Spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a, a staghorn sumac is actually um, a cloning species. Right. So uh, one, one big aspect of that is that you're either going to get female clones. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Uh -oh. Okay, yeah, <laughs> female clones or male clones. So the, the trees are, um, they're not bisexual. Correct. So they're either male or female. But the, the flowers are actually really cool. They have vestigial sex organs of the other sex on the flower. So what? if it's a really? female flower, it has these vestigial um, male parts. So ah. vestigial um, anthers and whatnot. I did not know that. Right. But another interesting thing about the flower, and I have a book, Botany in a Day, but I also have... Um, Botany Illustrated, incredible books because they give you everything you need to know about all these different families. But they actually show the the um, a good diagram for the flower of Staghorn sumac. It has uh, it's a three parted um, carpel, so the female part of the plant is is fused carpels. Okay, but it only has one seed cavity, so only one seed develops in each flower. Oh. But you you would have gotten that, or because it's it's a droop, so it's still just the one seed. But I thought it was interesting because a lot of times. When you're walking around and you're seeing plants and you're seeing the seeds that they're putting out, if it's a fused carpel, let's say if it's bicarpelate, it's going to have two seeds in it. Or if it's tricarpelate, it's going to have three seeds in it. But even though this is three fused carpels... Hang on, Steve. Shut up for a second. White-throated? Uh, Zona it, Tricia albicola. It, yeah. it is a white-throated sparrow feeding on the sumac. His nice little white patch under his beak. I love uh, white-throated sparrows. I was just being funny when I would tell you to shut up. <laughs> That's fine. But I was just saying, it's a it's a fused carpel. It's got three carpels fused together, but it only produces one seed, now, what which is I a, think is interesting. What is a carpel for people who don't know what a carpel is? So a carpel, that's that's the area of the female part of the flower where the seed will develop. So that'll have the ovary, that'll have... Yeah. Well, either way, that's where the seed develops. So yeah. think of a cherry or think a of a peach. Uh, peach. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I wasn't going to talk about droops yet, but 
why don't we jump ahead then? I did want to add in that what the family is, the Anacardiaceae. Yes, okay, good. We'll talk okay. about that. So that's um, that's the sumac family, but it can also be known as like the cashew family. Um, it includes um, plants like mango. Yeah. Right, mango. I didn't uh, know until I did the research. I did this, not know about mango. Yeah. Yeah, poison ivy, sumac, pistachio. Yep. And then there's a few more, but those are really the best known ones. And also, staghorn sumac, Rus typhina. You say Rus or Rus? Rus. Well, I think it's Rus. I think okay. I, I meant to say Rus. Right. So, poison ivy and poison oak were previously in the Rus genus, but now they're in Toxicodendron. Right. And yeah. all of them, though, are still members of the cashew family. Yes, they're so all... Yeah, they a... changed, changed genera, but they're still in the same family. Right. And, and one actually interesting thing about the differences between the genera is that all Rus fruits are bright orange. Rus. All Rus fruits... <laughs> <laughs> are bright orange and all toxicodendron fruits are either white or yellowish berries so there is so there is like a um, phenotypic difference between the genera but these aren't orange oh when they're in their prime they're like a they're like a bright dark orange some of the pictures i've seen look really orangey i'm talking about the ones in front of me i think there's there's some variation these look maroonish really reddish yeah <laughs> all right i think they're red but <laughs> Well, maroon. It's also sort of dark in the wintertime. No, Maybe they're red! Under the right lighting, who knows what they are, really. I fondled many a, a bunch of... Oh my of, god, don't finish that statement. <laughs> I fondled many a bunch of staghorn sumac berries. They're red. Yeah, yeah, well... <laughs> All right, so anyway, though, uh, toxicodendron, there is a, a sumac that is poisonous. Okay. Yeah, so toxicodendron vernix. Oh, I didn't know that. So that's poison sumac. You know about poison sumac. Well, yeah, but I didn't know that it was a... Oh, right. What was, I don't know what I was thinking. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> but I find when I talk about sumac to people, even people that I think would, would know quite a bit about nature, they assume that this sumac, staghorn sumac, with the clusters of red berries they see along the roads, they think that's poison sumac. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. Have you well, run into that where people get confused? I, I don't know. I, it, I don't really hang out with people that don't know a lot about it. <laughs> it sounds bad, but, you know, as, as you get older, sometimes sure. certain people sort of fall off your radar, and you're, only, you're, you're so closed in by like-minded people sometimes. Well, let's point out that poison sumac is in a different genera. It is yeah. in the same family, the Anacardiaceae, the cashew mm-hmm. family, but it's in a different, different genera, Toxicodendron, and it has white berries. And right. you're, it really only grows, I've only found it in, in, in habitat descriptions, I've only found poison sumac growing in wet, swampy areas. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had more than one person tell me um, if you start to fall or sink into a swamp, the first tree you grab for will be poison sumac. <laughs> That's yeah. going to be the one you grab onto. Wow. Um, so staghorn sumac, though, is, I think it looks like almost nothing else. No, I, I don't, I can't think of anything else. That it would look like. A small tree. It has that clonal domed appearance. Yeah. And then these clusters of furry red berries. Something interesting about the way the tree is shaped, it has this flat crown. There's these stout branches that end almost like in an umbrella. And every tip, I think every branch ends in a fruit. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's like nothing else really has that look that I know of. You're not going to find skinny sumac branches. Yeah. Now, what I was going to say before was that the other species of sumac, did you... Do you know that we have fragrant fragrant sumac here in Western New York? We have smooth sumac here in Western New York? I know that it can hybridize with smooth sumac, but I, I, I don't think I've come across smooth or but fragrant. But on USDA plants, there were accounts in Erie County, uh, Chautauqua County, for oh. smooth sumac and fragrant sumacs in Niagara, Orleans County, all these. Maybe these are all can, counties right around us. Or we can ask the Botanical Society and they can tell us where it is. <laughs> I've never Knowingly. noticed it. Right. Yeah, so maybe right. I've seen it and said, oh, look, sumac, and just assumed it was staghorn sumac. Right. But let's do some general description, though. 
Sure. Why is it called staghorn sumac? Oh, yeah. If you look at the branches, they're covered in this really dense, woolly... Velvet. Yeah, it's like a velvet, right. So Um, like uh, a deer Yeah, like the... Like the velvet that a deer gets on its antler that it sheds off in fall. The we'll fall, shed them in the fall, the fall early winter. You find it. All right, so the uh, the clusters of berries, uh, those emerge during the summertime. And mm-hmm. like you said, on certain clones, those are going to be the male. Those clusters of flowers uh, will just release the pollen. Right. And then on the female, like these are all females in front of us here because they bear the fruit. Yes. So. You'll usually find a bunch of females together or, or a bunch of males together. So, you know, I wonder if I've ever come across a stand of sumac that I didn't even realize was sumac because it was all males. You probably if, just... If, if the flowers had already Yeah, because it was during the wintertime and there's there's no leaves on it. Right. You're just assuming, oh, it's, it's sumac or... Yeah. I don't Although, know what it is. Although, it's very rare, but sometimes a plant will arise that has both male and female parts. Um, but that's... Uh, from the study that I that I found this in, it's less than two plants in every thousand produced. Oh, wow. okay. So it's a very small. Less than one <laughs> yeah. percent. Yeah. Oh no, less than, less than. Oh yeah, less than one percent. But it's yeah. less than point two percent. Yeah, it's tiny. Yeah, and I do want to say the the leaves of this sure. are compound leaves. So feather pinnate. Or feather feather pinnate. That's right. Yeah. So just like we we were talking about with multiflora rose in the last episode, if you were to pluck a leaf off. Uh, where the the leaf stem, the petiole, attaches to the stem, mm-hmm. you would be holding in your hand what seems like a, a cluster of leaves. But that's a compound. It's almost like leaf. a branch with a bunch of leaves growing right. off of it. So you're holding the the petiole in your fingertips, and then the leaf stem that goes up is going to have lots of leaves coming off of it, as you said, in a, mm-hmm. a feather uh, pinnate arrangement. Right. And the leaf itself can be 12 to 24 inches long, so it can be a foot to two feet long, and it's going to have Gosh, how many leaflets? I had 7 to 31 leaflets. I Whoa. think there's a huge... That's uh, a huge range. Yeah. Yeah, so there's usually a lot. You know, and we've talked about this before. I think in the Fall Colors episode, we talked about ash trees. So we described um, what a compound leaf is before. Yeah. But the big difference, well, other than just looking at the tree, there's a huge difference. But the big difference in the way the leaves are arranged on the tree is that in staghorn sumac, they're alternate. So they stagger on, on the branches. Right. They don't, they're not opposite of each other coming off of the branch. Right. Um, if you remember that from episode two, which, and if you haven't, go back. Go back and listen <laughs> yeah. to it. <laughs> now, do you know about foliar flagging? You must have heard about yeah, that. Yeah, I know about this. So staghorn sumac, in the fall, mm-hmm. the leaves turn this vibrant, vibrant red color. Right. Uh, and that's flagging the for the animals. is trying to flag the fruits that, hey, come on in here. Our fruits are ready right. to be dispersed. So that's the, the foliar flagging aspect. Now, getting back to the hallucinogenic thing, I did have someone tell me once on a hike when I told them that story. Sure. They said, oh, you got to harvest them when they're red. That's when they're the most hallucinogenic. <laughs> yeah. Some people have these ideas. Who knows? Maybe there is something to it. But Now, I, I will say this is uh, not uh, study-based. It's not based in a scientific study, but um, staghorn sumac leaves, it has been uh, historically, through historical accounts, it's been found that it was a component of many Native American groups, it was a component of their tobaccos. Okay. Uh, so have, have you heard of Kinnikinick? Yes. So it's like a small, really low-growing shrub. Or it is. Not, it's not a shrub. Sorry, it's a low-growing, spreading Herb- Herbaceous plant. plant. Yeah. You know, there's different plants that have that name, but it is also the name given to different combinations of tobacco and plants that Native Americans used. Hmm. So say the, the Delaware Indians... Um, you know, living that would have lived further east of here, 
closer to the Atlantic, they would have had a particular combination of kinnikinnik. Okay. Uh, and then other uh, groups around here would have a different mixture. Some groups called it kinnikinnik, some groups called it other names. But the one account I found was interesting. They said certain groups of Delaware Indians, they used so much sumac in their uh, tobacco combination mm-hmm. that uh, scouts and uh, other people nearby, they could tell that this group of natives were coming or in the neighborhood because of the odor. It was so distinctive. Really? That sumac leaves give off such a distinctive odor. And I can tell you when we did burn it, it smelled so god-awful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do have a little thing on that. According to John Eastman, an author that we like that wrote the book of Forest and Thicket, staghorn sumac is not a good firewood. He says yes. it throws sparks. That's right. They said it's more like a firework show. Or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so don't, don't burn it. Right. Uh, let's talk about um, the berries and, and who eats it. Sure. So I got over 100 species of birds are known to consume it. I actually, that's what I think I read in Eastman, mm-hmm. but what I found in a separate study was that over, or about 300 songbird species Whoa. include sumac in the diet. So okay. it may not be an important part of the diet, yeah. and in fact, um, it's often referred to as, you know, its only importance is as a supplementary or secondary food. Um, it's like an emergency food for wildlife. Yeah, and I think Eastman yeah. said, if extensive feeding of sumac is noticed, mm-hmm. that means preferred foods aren't available. Yeah. Like, if they're picking out on sumac, that's not a good sign. Yeah. So, they're scraping the bottom of the cupboard. Sure. Did you want to say what some of the birds were, or should we? Well, you know who it's going to be. It's going to be grouse. Well, I have, a, I have the list of all 300 here, so let me start. So, ring-necked pheasant. Oh, sorry. Spoiler alert. Ring-necked pheasant, ruffed grouse, wild... <laughs> I was so you you do not like to cut me off. I was going to let you keep going. I wanted to see how far you were going to go with that. I have ten birds written down. <laughs> I think Eastman said that cottontail rabbits, when they eat the seeds of sumac, that seeds will germinate faster. Right, and it's not just them. There's a there's a couple other. Did you find any studies on that though? I tried to find studies. Right, what oh. I have is the germination of sumac seeds um, is actually enhanced. Uh, by the passage um, through the digestive system of rabbits, ring-necked pheasants, and quail. So okay. those are at least three that have been studied. That's all I've So read. they benefit when they're scarified. Right. Oh, we, yes. we talked so about we this talked in about the last... stratification last episode, and, and this episode, scarification. Scarification. Right. right. I don't know if we left it in or if we cut it out of the last episode, but we'll say um, that uh, scarification, it's, it's an important part of a seed's um, germination, uh, the seed coat needs to be ruptured in some way. No, but not all plants require. No, not all plants. Only some plants do. Well, if the plant, if it's part of its strategy uh, to spread its seed, it's gonna attri- it's gonna be edible, and, and it's gonna let animals know that it's edible, and those animals have evolved with it. And so, yeah, if it needs to pass through a digestive system, or if it needs to get far away, it's gonna want to be eaten. So sure, that makes yeah. sense. Where were we? Oh, we were talking about who eats it. Oh, yeah. So I have white-tailed deer. They eat the seeds, the twigs, and the foliage. Uh, skunks eat the seeds. Moose eat the twigs. Cottontail rabbits eat the twigs and the bark. And fox squirrels eat the bark. I don't know. I imagine other squirrels might eat the bark, Oh, too. I imagine, too. Yeah. And I think we should mention we haven't. This is a native. Right. Yeah. Um, now, talking more about the fruits, we yeah. mentioned the word droop. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, this is one of those terms that in, you know, being someone interested in plants and, and wildlife, it's a term I came across a lot, but I never looked it up until this episode. Okay. So this is what I found. The definitive characteristic of a droop, and think of plants like plums, peaches, cherries, mango, uh, even almonds. Okay. Uh, the definitive characteristic is, is it has a hard, lignified stone, uh, also called a pit. And uh, lignin, 
that's what gives trees their stability, their hardness. Right. Is their their cells stiffen with lignin, mm -hmm. um, their heartwood in the middle of a tree. So that's why a stone, a peach stone, is so hard. Um, and that lignified stone is derived from the ovary wall of the flower. Other fleshy fruits may have a hard enclosure that comes from the seed coat, but such fruits are not droops. And you can think of an apple seed. Okay. So that yeah. is a hard coat. Right. That's a poem. Mm -hmm. um, not the same thing. Kind of what I took away is that if it's a droop, it's kind of like embedded and it takes a little effort to get the seed out. Sure. Because it was part of the ovary wall. Okay. So, and maybe it seems too obvious to you, but in, in taking people on hikes, a lot of people don't realize that flowers become fruits. Oh, the, I was eating an apple yesterday and I, I took a bite of it and right in there you could see all the anthers, all the filaments, like at the, at the base of an apple where it has, what would you even call that? Um, I guess where it, like the sepals, I don't need, how do you, how do you describe that part of an apple? Right. It's like the butt of the apple. The of the <laughs> sure. So, so at the butt of the apple, if you just cut that in half, just look inside and you'll see the male parts of it. And obviously right. the female parts have have expanded into the, what the apple is, yeah. but uh, you could still find the male parts. And on strawberries, I think every oh, time yeah. I eat a strawberry now, I notice the anthers and the and, and everything else. And, and same thing with apples. Apples and I think strawberries are the two biggest ones that I, every single time I notice. You notice that, oh, yeah, this was a flower. Yeah, yeah, right. Because there's the proof. The proof is right there. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so. I just sort of mentioned a few things about the mammals um, and, and which mammals eat it. But it turns out that it's not the best food for mammals all the time. And, and I'll explain that using a study uh, with white-footed mice. So um, this study is sort of looking at um, a phenomenon that happens in summer, so it's, it wouldn't be something that's going on right now. They did this study, and they want to see what was a big part of the white-footed mouse's diet. They looked at a bunch of native fruits, and then they also looked at honeysuckle, so the one non-native. Um, and, and like we said before, it's lonicera. And what they found, and this was surprising to me, that honeysuckle was consumed less than every single native in the study, except staghorn sumac. Wow. So all the natives beat honeysuckle except for staghorn sumac, which was less. But there could be a reason for that. So uh, from March to November is the white-footed mouse's breeding season. And during the breeding season, you're going to be losing um, water, you know, through lactation and because of their high-protein diet, which I didn't know anything about this high-protein diet. But apparently, when white-footed mice uh, digest protein, what it does is it actually increases the, the amount of water loss in the urine. Uh -huh. And the reason it does this is because it's trying to remove these toxic byproducts that end up happening through the digestion of, um, of certain proteins, right? And so um, the summer diet of white-footed mice is largely arthropod-based, which I didn't know. I didn't know that no, either. I didn't know that. And that's a high-protein food. Honeysuckle fruits have a relatively high moisture content, so honeysuckles usually doesn't really have all that much benefit to wildlife. But in this case, with white-footed mice, it is better. They need something to drink. <laughs> because, they need, because they need that water content. Yeah. And, um, and staghorn sumac, it's the least consumed out of all of those I believe by it. the white-footed mouse. Um, it, has a, it has a low moisture, and it has um, actually the lowest amount of kilocalories in, as well in the study out of all the different fruits. And I should just mention what the other ones were. Um, black cherry, southern arrowwood, so that's a viburnum, and winter grape. And, oh. sorry, northern dewberry as well. So um, those four natives, and then and then again staghorn, and then again lonicera. Okay, so do you have any, I mean... Do you want to walk a little bit? Yeah, I was going to say we should walk. Why don't we yeah. walk a little bit? See what oh, else? oh, hey, cottontail. Oh, yeah. There we like go. A little one. 
Yeah, and we did talk about cottontail in our studies. It's always nice to see something that <laughs> you just talked about, especially with mammals. We did a mammal episode. I think we saw an eastern chipmunk. Yeah, that was it, I think. <laughs> yeah. Now, as far as non-consumptive uses, I did read some birds will cache seeds and other foods inside the berry clusters. Okay. So, uh, you know what, I'll try to look that up and we can write an episode note to see if that is correct or not. Sure, this is disgusting, but when I was a kid I used to eat staghorn sumac. Why is that disgusting? No, well, I'll, I'll explain. Okay. I, growing up, I was, I didn't like touching worms, I didn't like, I was like a very, I don't know, like I didn't like things that felt gross. A squeamish kid. I was a squeamish kid, right. And so we decided, hey, let's just save some sumac for later. So we brought some uh, Ziploc bags, we snapped some sumac right off the trees, <laughs> and we put them in these Ziploc bags. Okay. You know, we, we had them on our porch or something for, uh, down at my cabin, we had them on the porch for a few hours. We came back to them, and suddenly the bags were crawling with what I assumed at the time was worms. But really what it most likely was was like larvae, larvae of, yeah. of different insects and whatnot. But... It was still disgusting, and ever since then, I never ate it again. I was like, I was just picking fruits off of that and, <laughs> and eating it. Well, I love that uh, you brought that up now, because I was going to save this for later in the podcast episode, sure. but uh, I actually made some sumac tea, and I want you to try it. <laughs> sure, I'm, I'm totally for it. All right, so let's do that now. Do we want to give the recipe here, or should we post that online and people can look it up? Oh, you could. how about as you're, as you're getting out of your backpack, you can okay. talk about it. So you have to gather the berries, and the rule of thumb is... You get one cluster of berries for every cup of drink that you want to make. Sure. And then when you bring the berries, berry clusters inside, I usually just use a big soup pot. Mm -hmm. And I'll gently squeeze the clusters just to kind of bruise the berries to break some of the hairs. Okay. And I put the clusters into the big pot, and then I put in, you know, as much water as I need. If I have four clusters of berries, I put in four cups of water. Maybe a little more. Okay. I use just cold water. You can use hot water. Uh, that'll draw things out quicker, mm -hmm. but to me it gives it more of a, a bitter flavor. So I just steep it in in the cool water for I don't know as many hours as it until it starts to look a deep red color. Okay. And then I use a coffee filter and I strain it through a coffee filter, and then it's ready to go. Okay. So I, I, can I tell you a couple things about this? Yeah, go ahead. So it's very likely that this drink is going to be high in ascorbic acid, yep. malic acid vitamin C, vitamin A, and it, and I actually think it does have some fat and some tannins in it. Oh, it definitely has tannins in it. Right. Um, so uh, each cluster of droops may contain, so each group, that, that, that thick panicle that you see at the end of a branch, that has about 100 to 700 seeds in it. Um, They're densely packed. Very densely packed. And I guess, how many, how many seeds do you think you would have if you weighed out a pound? Oh, my God. Uh... 5,000. 60,000. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and just one thing we didn't mention before. Uh, the fruits are produced on the plants uh, at three to four years of age. So it takes the, takes the trees a few years okay. to, to start producing. So each clonal stem. Is this frozen or is that like... Well, we've been, I've been carrying it around all morning, so it, it froze a little bit in my backpack. All sure. right. So first, try this one. Okay. I have two, uh, two jars. Tell me you put honey in one of them or something. Okay. So this one is unsweetened. Okay. Unsweetened. So. That's not bad. No. That tastes better than unsweetened tea. And yeah. I, I do like iced tea that's no, like, unsweetened. I, I like it. I make this on a regular basis. I oh, like yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so this one, the next one, has honey in it. Okay. You can tell it's different. It looks. Yep. It almost looks like honey. It looks like very watery It's cloudier. Yeah. yeah, it's cloudier. And it smells really good. You, it smells like honey. 
Oh, I don't even know which one I like better. I think yeah. I like them both. Like yeah. I, I might like this one a tiny bit more, but they're good. I almost feel like I can't really afford honey all that time, all the much. <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, so when you were doing that, ooh, watch out! Oh, stripping. So when you were making it, mm -hmm. did you come across what I came across? Did okay. you come across, I don't know, dead, dead insects? Well, my insects weren't dead, but you collected them recently, right in the winter time. So maybe I don't think there'd be anything that's alive in there. So I could that, be wrong. That but, first jar. Um, mm -hmm. That was unsweetened. Yeah, that was the one that had lots of old insect larvae in the uh, bunch of the bunch of berries. That that ended up in your. Uh... No, I'm just kidding. Oh no, I'm say, kidding. Dude, I was wondering. Well, I was I'm, I was serious. I don't know. Like you would imagine that all the insects that I found in my plastic bag would have gotten out of there. Right. That's like a normal part of their life, and normally they're not going to stay in there until they die. They're going to get out, and they're going to they're going to return to their adult forms and everything. So, um, yeah. I will say that. When I went out to pick the berries after researching this episode, there was a great description. I think it might have been in Eastman of saying, if you go out in the winter and you pull up out the berry clusters, that they're going to be mined by insects. You're going to find piles of frass, which is basically insect waste. So I just... No, no, no. So what I did is <laughs> I went out and I gathered probably 10 berry clusters, okay. brought them back to the house. And the ones that were seriously mined, sure. um, I could see insect frass. I didn't use those. Okay. The ones I did use... It's possible that something was in there. Ooh, it tastes like insect frass. <laughs> but, again, you're running it through the coffee filter. Right. Um, and is that stuff poisonous? I mean, it's highly unlikely that any of that stuff would be detrimental. Yeah, to, I'm pretty you know. sure that on a daily basis you eat worse stuff than that. <laughs> so there is something I do want to talk about since we're talking about the fruits. And so do you know about these sex ratios? Yes. Oh, but go you, ahead. Okay. So... Um, You'll find that there's male clones are more numerous than female clones most of the year. Like that's most of the time you're going to find that male clones. There's just more of them. Right. Um, and so there was the study from 1988 from ecology that I found that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, and so what it was more or less trying to say was that the female sexual effort is usually in most species more costly. Right. Um, than the male reproductive. Let cost. me jump in. Yeah, sure. Because that's called. The cost of reproduction hypothesis. Oh, okay. So the belief that if you have male and female individuals, mm -hmm. um, the female, since reproduction is more costly, it probably is going to take more energy. Okay. That there's going to be some detriment. Okay, yeah, yeah. right. Well, okay, so what, what they found was that the male clones, also called genets, so male clones, there's more of them. But an interesting thing about that, and this is just sort of a sidebar, is that there's fewer leaves on flowering branches than what the females have. So, um, in general, the females will have fewer leaves by far. Um, but on their flowering stalks, they have more leaves. Right. So it's, it, does that make sense? Is it that does. clear? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so now let's just get onto the female clones. So, um, so like I said, they have fewer leaves and I've, in this study, they found that there was half as many leaves as in the males. Um, except for on the flowering branches. And they also had a third of the number of the branches on a trunk. So, and, and of course, when you, have, when you have a third of the number of branches, you're going to have way fewer of the number of flowers as well because right. there's less branches, you know. So, and they actually point that out. There's like, of course, because there's fewer branches available to bear flowers and fruits. Um, but the one thing that they did find is that even though there was these differences in, in reproductive and, and, and foliage and everything... Um, they actually had the same, males and females, had the same annual trunk increments. Right. Yeah, and I thought that was really interesting. So the trunks are the same size. Right, and yeah. so the, the females are not suffering as a consequence 
of this greater reproductive stress. At least in terms of trunk diameter. Just in that. Right. Did, did we look at the same study? I think we did look at the same Because this gets really cool, I think. I think this is where it starts getting interesting. See, I think when I reach this point, I'm like, this is just too confusing. And Steve's thinking, this is so cool, and you keep going. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so I, I'll throw this in, too. Uh, so um, even though there's, there's half as many um, flowers on the female, the fruits have six times as much biomass as the male flowers. One thing that females do is that females may hold on to their leaves longer or they may actually flower less than the males. And holding on to the leaves longer is something that we saw with multiflora rose where in the fall, it'll, it'll keep its leaves a little bit longer than yeah. some of the other trees that are you know blocking its sunlight from the canopy. But is sumac doing that? Is the female sumac doing that? Is it holding it onto its leaves longer? Because it has, has, it has the fruit that needs to be dispersed so it wants to flag its fruit. Oh, that yeah. could be it. That Actually, the flagging could explain that a little bit. Yeah. So um, there is this one really interesting part of the study. My favorite part of the study is that female gennets or female clones are, are more likely to be vegetative or dead. Okay. And I think this is maybe one of the more interesting parts. And there's a couple hypotheses that they have of why this might be the case. So maybe, maybe they're dead or vegetative because... They're under more reproductive costs, more reproductive stress, and so they just can't afford to flower. They can't afford so, or maybe they try to, and just you know, there's there's a loss there somewhere, and the the, the plant doesn't end up making it; it just dies. Right. So that's why maybe there's more dead stems or more vegetative stems. But there's another hypothesis that's really interesting, and that is a flowering female may draw nutrients from its surrounding clones. Oh, this is why you have to read the sure. discussions on every paper because this is where they get That's into cool. some of this really interesting stuff. So, like this clone is saying, "All right, sisters, mm-hmm. like I'm fruiting, so right. I need some of your." It's like one of us has to fruit, okay? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and I'm either I'm gonna sap some energy from you guys, so you're either gonna stay vegetative or you might die. Because technically, yeah, they're all the same plant, right? They're just different. Oh yeah, because yeah, the they're plant. all clones and they're they're attached yeah. uh, from underground. Yeah, uh, yeah. So this this stand of sumac next to us is right. re- it could theoretically be one plant, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. The interesting part of the study is that there's different costs and patterns of reproduction in male and female trees. So, like I said before, the males or the females may flower less. They may hold on to their leaves longer. They may be sapping nutrients from surrounding clones. There's just a lot of things that they have to worry about that maybe a male tree wouldn't have to do. The male tree just has its flowers, sends the sends the pollen, <laughs> out. Sends the pollen out. Yeah. 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 Now, I did find a review that was really looking at the cost of reproduction hypothesis, where it looked at a okay. whole bunch of studies. Sure. Now, what they found is... Oh, l- let me just... I want to remind everyone, my study was from 1988. Okay. So I don't, I don't know. Like, because there's been a lot of years since it's almost 20 okay. years off now. Well, so, I think we should point out to or people... more than 20, sorry, 25 years. <laughs> we had a hard time finding a lot of research on sumac. Oh, on no state. one wants to talk about sumac. <laughs> In fact, the vast majority of the studies were studies with other species yep. it was hard to find a study on sumac right so yeah. so this review that i found said that for woody species generally speaking females are smaller if you have um dioecious uh species where right you have two female plants and, and male yeah. plants two houses male house or female house right uh, then the females will generally be smaller although with right. sumac it's not the case. It doesn't look like. Um, apparently, the females are a little bit smaller until about the age of six, right. and then they catch up and they actually they actually grow at a, a little bit of a faster in rate late than succession. The yeah. There isn't a big difference, right? But then they found in herbaceous plants when you have dioecious herbaceous plants, mm-hmm. 
there is there isn't a difference in size hmm. so there doesn't seem to be a huge difference that's interesting yeah yeah so and it, and it didn't ex- it didn't say right. why it said we don't really know this is an area of more research so. oh so do you have something else can i can nope. i I'm, i have it. a jumping off point so going off of finding um finding a conclusion to a study without having a explanation i I actually have a really interesting one about road salt and staghorn sumac okay so um so this study was done in massachusetts and this is actually i didn't know about this so in massachusetts 240 pounds of salt and 12 pounds of um sodium uh, chloride so nacl per lane mile so what that means is that for every mile of road that gets salted you're you're putting out you know 240 pounds of oh, sand God. and 12 pounds of of salt road salt so this is this That's is a lot the real danger is from the salt spray from the cars and from the and from plows and the roads they're being salted and 10 to 25 percent of that salt is traveling through the air and it's actually found within 30 feet of the road which happens to totally match up with the most severe damage to foliage on plants is within 30 feet of the <laughs> road. So, uh, so I guess burning and browning of the leaves or needles is really how you're going to see it. And you're actually going to see more damage on the side of the tree that's facing the road. Of course. Right. And where does oh. sumac grow very often? <laughs> right, right on the edge of things. And, yeah. and so a road through a forested area, you're going to potentially have sumac on the side. Um, but now we're going to see that they do very, very poorly within 30 to 40 feet of the <laughs> road. Um, just any road that's salted, that is. So um, pines are especially sensitive to road salt injury. So pines are not really good at it. The thing is, they're that, yeah. fine if the salt is in the soil. For oh, one reason really? or another, they're fine. Well, think of acidic soils. Yeah. Uh, they're usually a little bit less, um, less nutrients and everything else. So, so the problem is, is when the salt lands on the leaves, because it's causing this like osmotic effect that's drawing the water out of the leaf. Uh, okay. So it has this effect that if you, if you, I don't know, take plant physiology or something, it's going to be called plasmolysis, sure. where the leaves are going to be sort of, sort of pathetic looking because the water's drawn out of them. They're a little bit limp. They're just they're not doing very well at all. Um, so. There are some salt-tolerant species. So this is going to be like various oak species, quercus. Um, you're going to get uh, maples, poaceae, the family for grasses. Um, there's some ferns and yarrow, you know, just the little yeah. herbaceous plant yarrow. Yeah. Achillea um, millifolium. What is it? Achillea millifolium. Look at you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so sodium concentrations um, in the leaves, actually, they, that did increase with the closeness to the road. So that would be true for pines, uh, grasses, oaks, and sumacs. Like I said, uh, in the soil, there was some changes, obviously. So the salt concentration is higher, the electrical condu- uh, conductivity is higher, and pH were higher. So you're going to get more basic um, as you get closer to these roads. Um, but what does the salt do? There's something in soil, especially in this area, called colloids. It's going to be sort of the uh, clay part of the soil, and it's negatively charged. So it has these positive charged cations that are in the soil attached to that. The thing is, those colloids like sodium a little bit better than they like a lot of other nutrients that you'd find in the soil. So when, when, when you have sodium coming in, it knocks a bunch of other stuff out and it just washes off the land. Anywhere where there's too much salt, it just washes off that and goes somewhere else. So I guess with salting and then with runoff. So you're going to be losing it's a lot bad. of nutrients that the trees would normally be taking in through their roots. So the health of the soil degrades. Right. So all that is to say, and I know this was a big tangent because I, I haven't really brought up sumac, but sumac is like the one broadleaf plant in this study that showed a huge decline 
due to salting the roads. So what it found is that sumacs had less than 10% of their leaves remaining on the plant. Holy cow. And the, the amount of sodium in the leaves were higher as you got closer okay. to the road. Right. So, um, and then I searched the whole paper. I read the whole thing through. They don't explain why. So again, this is a, this is a study from communications and soil science and plant analysis. That's where they really focus on the soil a lot. But it's from 2006. And I, hadn't find any, I didn't find anything new about why sumacs have this salt intolerance but um i thought it was interesting and yeah. they're they're really doing poorly near the road and man so. here in the northeast salting is oh so oh my gosh all over so the place. common yeah do, but do we use sand mixed with our salt or is it just salt it depends on the municipality because okay. i used to live out in a rural area and they used more sand than salt sure but I, you know most of the trucks i see around here i see a lot of salt going down and i don't see a lot of sand on the side of the road okay you know i do have one last thing i want to mention because we, we talked about having difficulty finding studies. Most of the studies that I found that were current mm-hmm. were from China. Okay. Because sumac is an invasive over there. Okay. Should we say spoiler alert before you tell us what... Maybe someone didn't read the study. <laughs> <laughs> you're just going to knock me out one of these times. <laughs> okay. Spoiler alert. <laughs> okay. Spoiler alert. If you're reading uh, the Forest Research Beijing... Okay. journal <laughs> this is going to be old news to you so this was in 2010 now i loved the um the depth to which they they conducted this study so sure. they, they were trying to look at the um allelopathic effects of sumac so steve tell everybody what that is a plant will release certain chemicals into the soil that'll actually make it either impossible for other plants to germinate there or it'll actually make the plants suffer in a way where they may actually just die out they around this way. So yeah, right. I know some, some plants actually have this with like, I think goldenrods have a little bit of an allelopathic effect. Black walnut is Black a walnut one. does. Yeah. So what they did is they used um, a water extract. So they would take uh, fresh leaves and they made a water extract of unbroken fresh leaves, broken fresh leaves. Mm-hmm. Then they used dried leaves, broken and unbroken. And then they also used a water extract of soil from under sumacs. Sure. And then they looked at, they tried to germinate different plants in the presence of, of these different chemicals. So uh, these different extracts. So what they found is most of them really didn't have much of an effect. Uh, the, the water extract from the soil really had no effect at all. Okay. They said the most significant one was the broken fresh leaves so with an extract of that think this is one of the plants they looked at brassica okay so mustard chinensis so what do you think brassica chinese mustard (laughs) i guess (laughs) so it's actually chinese cabbage it's bok choy oh really yeah bok choy so they're they're, like bok choy they were really doing this because they wanted to see is sumac affecting growth of commercial plants like bok choy and right. wheat they also look and at wheat. so it's is it invasive over in china or not it, it is it is it's considered invasive right so what they found is that it reduced the germination potential of bok choy to five percent oh so it dropped huge what's it normally at uh i don't know i should know <laughs> <laughs> it's usually at six <laughs> percent but they said it was <laughs> but then no, they said it was a significant reduction. Right, right. right. Uh, and that, and they, me, that really does mean something. So. They said it was similar for wheat seeds, and that four native trees were similarly impacted. Okay. Okay. Uh, now the the other interesting part of the study was that when they took the water extract of the surface soil, mm-hmm. it showed no inhibition of of seedling growth or, or germination, but it promoted the growth of Chinese mahogany. 
So the Chinese mahogany tree did better when they took a water extract of soil from under sumac. And these are these are not plants that have evolved together. But That's weird. for That's some cool. reason, yeah. Life hack. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, so, as I said, most of the studies that I found from recent times mm-hmm. were looking at interactions between sumac and plants in China. Cool. Because they're looking, it's a problem over there, so they're trying yeah. to figure out what's it doing, why is it a problem, and how can we um, address those problems. Right. And that is it for me on sumac. Yeah, I, I think I'm done with everything I had, too. All right. So, as usual, we want to tell people to... Uh, Check us out on Facebook and our website. Right. Uh, recommend us to your friends if you mm-hmm. can leave a review on iTunes. Right. Because uh, it is available to download through iTunes. Mm-hmm. So give us a share. Tell your friends about it if you think they're like-minded individuals. And, and uh, if you have ideas for future episodes. Oh, for sure. Definitely. And let us yeah. know what you think about the shorter episodes. Right. Do you think that's a good idea? We're we're trying to encourage more people to listen to the podcast. Right. And I, these last two episodes, I I do fear that they're going to be a little bit over a half hour. And and so the goal is to. Get them down to a half hour, and you may see slowly we may get closer and closer to a half hour. We're going to try to get better at that, um, but that's what our that's what the plan is. Well, yeah. folks, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Yep, see you then.